I did something probably stupid in retrospect. I started doing my own audit, my own investigation clandestinely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for this show and a CPA myself. Well, for today, we have a very unique guest. Tom Golden is joining us for the show. And Tom was the partner in charge for the forensic accounting practice in Chicago at PwC. And his career journey definitely took him into some very interesting and somewhat dangerous situations, actually, all over the globe. Tom also happens to be an author now, and and he's retired. So make sure you check out our show notes page for links to his two books recounting the investigations that were performed on two of the more notable cases that he worked on. Another interesting tidbit in Tom's story is that he happened on forensics as a career really the hard way, so to speak. He was on one of his first engagements at PwC, and he discovered some anomalies. Those anomalies ended up being a rather large fraud with an SEC-traded company that kept him involved in the court processes for over a year. And, you know, it's really sad these situations occur, of course, but I think you're going to find Tom's journey both interesting to listen to and very educational from an accounting, audit, and fraud standpoint as well. There's really lots of value wrapped up in this interview. And if you do enjoy and learn something from this episode, of course, please leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. I wanted to read our most recent review. I really got a kick out of this one. I really appreciate it. It's from Fred Finfin. Whoever you are, Fred, thank you very much. It says, Mark and his guests share a wealth of knowledge. The stories are authentic and interesting. The advice is practical. This is a great resource for anyone preparing for a transition in or into the accounting industry. And I really got to kick out of this. Six out of five stars. (laughs) So thank you very much. Very humbling and very generous of you, Fred Finfin. Thank you very much for that review. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with this week's guest. I really think you're going to enjoy this interview. Here's Tom Golden. Well, hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. No problem. This is going to be fun. Well, for the audience, we have Tom Golden joining us on the show today. Tom is a forensic accountant that turned his long-term career in that field into the opportunity to educate others and write a few thriller books along the way as well. And just to sort of add to the suspense around this episode, he also happens to be connected to two of our other previous author guests that we've had on the show, one quite a ways back and then one not too long ago. But I'll let him sort of weave that into his story as we work our way through his career. Well, Tom, before we get to the present time, let's cover the early years of your career because I really want to showcase and let our audience see how you got into this field in the first place. What led you to consider that accounting might be a good career choice for you? Yeah, sure, Mark. It was anything but a straight line to the accounting and auditing industry, that's for sure. I was a uh, marketing major, college graduating in 1972. When you major in marketing, you got to sell something. So my first job was selling cigarettes for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. For, for six years, I sold cigarettes out of the trunk of my car. And then 1977, about a small distributor made me an equity offer in their business, 
selling candy and cigarettes wholesale, and I was the sales manager. It was an okay job, but I wasn't satisfied. I wanted more. I just didn't know what. And then in 1979, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and the author told of big change in the big eight accounting industry. They would be taking on consulting, adding it to their traditional lines of audit and tax. And the author was mocking the industry, saying, uh, well, this ought to be fun to watch. This is an industry full of geeks. and They're introverts. They couldn't sell a thing. And it just hit me. I, I thought, well, I'm a great salesman and I manage people well. This could be my future. So I sat my wife down and I told her, I says, I'm going to quit my job and I'm an accountant, and I'm going to join one of the big eight accounting firms. And, you know, she kind of snickered, and she said, well, honey, aren't you forgetting the kind of the main ingredient, like you're not an accountant? I first ignored her, and then filled with unwarranted confidence, I sent letters to all the big eight accounting firms extolling my sales experience and mentioning, you know, this article in the Wall Street Journal, and I'd be perfect for it. And I just sat back and waited for the phone to ring, and of course, it didn't. A week later, I got rejection letters from from all the firms. It's like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. So so every time I had gotten objections as a salesman, I, I just pick up the phone. So I picked up the phone. I called each firm. I was successful in getting through the screeners with only one firm. And it was Ernst & Winnie, today Ernst & Young. And talked to the HR manager. He listened. And I said, what do you think? And at the end, he kind of laughed. And he says, well, I'd say, Tom, your chances are slim and none, but if you're uh, committed to this pathway, uh, to this um, new career, let me suggest you do this. So he said, nobody's going to give you an interview. You're 30 years old, and we always hire out of college recruiting. So you got to get an advanced degree. He said, go get an MBA. So I'm, I'm taking notes during this whole conversation. And then he said, you've only had nine hours in accounting, you told me. you got to at least condition for the CPA exam. So... I took his advice on that, and we finished our conversation, and the short story is, two years later, I finished my MBA at Indiana University, and I had passed three parts of the CPA exam on the first sitting. I failed auditing, so keep that in mind. <laughs> I never had a class in auditing, right? And back then, you had to take all four parts of the exam at one time, and you had to get at least a 50 in the one you failed, or you wouldn't get credit for any of them. And I got a 54 in auditing. So I just, I sneaked through it. But then I had to convince an on-campus recruiter to bring me in the office. You know, that was selling. And then once in the office, I had a special meeting with the office managing partner to check me out because he told me later, and we became very good friends over the years. I was the oldest audit staff associate that he had ever hired. He had ever heard of anybody hiring. They just didn't do that. But then my biggest challenge was yet to come. I had to prove to other people in the office that I wasn't just a freak experiment. And that was the toughest part, but that worked out too. Wow. Wow. So how did you, because internships weren't popular back then or probably not even paid (laughs) if they even existed. Did you just do the same thing to get the interview, you know, to, to get your career started, just approach the firms again and, and sort of got lucky or through your financial well, was that, get the interview? So when I got the MBA, you sign up through campus recruiting, and I did. Okay. And then when I walked in to the recruiter, kind of looked at me and he snickered because he probably thought, well, this ought to be fun. And, yeah. you know, halfway through the interview, it was it was almost like a joke. But then at, near the end, he stood up, shake my hand. He said, uh, well, he said, thanks for coming in, Tom. And I didn't do anything glorious in the interview. I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to work. 
And as he was shaking my hand, he said, oh, I almost forgot. He picks up my resume and he, he says, oh, I see here you sat for the CPA exam in November. How'd you do? And I told him, I said, I passed three. He said, you passed three parts and you've never, you got nine hours in accounting? I said, yeah. I said, I guess I got lucky. He says, no. He says, that's not luck. And then he kind of smiled and he said, you'll be hearing from us very soon. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's what did it. He brought me in. Then convincing the managing partner that I had something uh, a little different. And he was a businessman. He saw the consulting was coming. He knew they needed people that could sell. And he gave me a shot. Before we get further into your career, I just have to ask, how long did it take to, for you to pass that last part? <laughs> oh, it's just a year. I mean, then I had okay. experience doing audits, right? Literally, I thought, <laughs> I at one point thought that double entry bookkeeping meant keeping two sets of books, one on-site and off-site in case of fire. <laughs> Honest to God, I did not know. that. You know, I had two beginning accounting courses uh, earlier in my career, you know, 10 years earlier because I was a business major, and I probably got C's in them. I wasn't a great student, didn't think much about accounting. I didn't know anything about accounting. I just knew that I was good at sales, and I always looked to differentiate myself in the marketplace. And I thought, okay, well, these guys can't sell. Wall Street Journal just said that. I'm a great salesman. All I have to do is learn this accounting stuff, and I'll be cool. Well, it's a little harder than that, obviously. Wow. Well, let's walk through your time at PwC, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And, sure. And actually, I'm, I'm curious... I guess just Price Waterhouse, right? When you first started? Well, I was hired. I was hired at Cooper's. Oh, okay. Which was one of the predecessor firms. Yep. And then they merged, I think, in 98. Cooper's merged with uh, Price Waterhouse. Okay. Okay. Well, let's walk through that time because sure. 26 years is a long time, first of all. And yep. I think it's important for our audience to hear the progression and, and sort of what allowed you to continue to be successful. So what was your first role? Let's start there. Sure. Well, I was hired as an audit staff associate. When I started, I was 32 years old, and it was a very bumpy road. I'm an extrovert. I'm an outgoing person. But by the time I got to the staff room and my 12 peers, 22-year-old kids, were looking at me, it was like, who's this guy? I mean, what's going on? I mean, there were partners there my age. Managers avoided me. They didn't want to assign me to their jobs because they thought he's not going to last long. And he never, never had auditing. You know, is, is our managing partner going nuts? So I was patient, but I was always, come Friday when they assigned everybody to the upcoming audits, I was always the last guy in, in the staff room. And I, I really thought, heard rumors, they're going to fire him soon. And I, I thought, okay, this was stupid. And one day I got a call from scheduling and they, they said, you're going to be starting at this company. I'll call it Gel because that's what I call it in the book, Sunday Night Fears. And uh, you report there Monday morning. And I went out there and all of a sudden I'm in the first meeting where the partner is up there and talking about the audit and the progression of the relationship with this company. And this is a public company and they were a high flyer in the city. I mean, they're articles in the paper every week about their continual stock rise and their unique accounting methods. And I was excited. I mean, I'm, I'm on this job. <laughs> my first audit, right? And about two weeks into the audit, I just saw some anomalies. I didn't trust the signatures on the lease agreements. I started talking to some of the clerks because, they, you know, they know everything, not the executives. And they would talk to me. And the more I looked, the more I decided that there could be a fraud here. So I did something probably stupid in retrospect. I started doing my own audit, my own investigation clandestinely. I'd stay over nights. I'd come in weekends. It got to the point where we finished preliminary 
and I got all kinds of questions, and I'm pretty sure there was a fraud going on. But I was new. I didn't know about SEC filings and all this other stuff. So good friend of mine, Bill, from the MBA program, I called him up. He was a controller at a public company. I said, can you help me? He said, sure. So he tells me all the SEC filings and prior audits and financials and says, meet me at the law library where we always met to study. And uh, by the end of that day, I had a list of things I needed to do, and I went back for year-end. And I come back at year-end. You know, it's only two weeks, kind of in a rush. They've uh, already identified the earnings release date. The company is excited. The firm's excited. Another successful year. And when I got through working down that list, I was absolutely convinced this was a massive leasing scam, and I was scared to death. Because I felt like I had a responsibility to do something. But like many of us do, we procrastinate. And I procrastinated all the way until the Sunday before the Friday earnings release. Actually, it was 2 o'clock Monday morning. And I just picked up the phone and I called not my senior associate, not the manager. I called the partner on the engagement. I got him out of bed. And he was nice about it. I'm sure I was rambling. And he said, okay, okay, I'll stop by tomorrow and you can show me what you got. And I screamed at him. He told me later, we still laugh about it. I said, no, you got to come in now. And <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, he walks in the company. Wow. I'm standing there with my evidence package. And, and now he's not smiling. He's probably thinking like, this guy's nuts. And I handed him my binder and he went into an office and slammed the door. And I sat out there, Mark, and I thought, you idiot, you're going to be fired. And an hour later, he walked out and he uh, looked at me. He was ashen. And he said, oh, my God, we got a problem. I got to assemble the board. And he walked right by me and started making phone calls. And by 8 o'clock in the morning, there was there, the whole board was there. President of any national bank. I mean, <laughs> all these famous people. And so I prepared the room for him. I got him documents to show them. And, and I said, you know, okay, here you go. I'll be right outside the door if you need anything. And, and he says, where are you going? I said, well, <laughs> he says, no, 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 you're going to stay. You're doing this. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So they had a quorum. They convened the meeting. I lay it all out, and the chairman is furious. He says, are you telling us our CFO did this? And I'm like, yeah. And somebody says, go get him. So, so all of a sudden, the door opens up. CFO sticks his head in, and he says, oh, I didn't know there was a board meeting. And then the, the chairman looks at me and says, tell him what you told us. And I thought, oh, geez. So I said it, and all he said was he smiled. He looked around the room and he said, it sounds like I need a lawyer. And he walked out of the company. And at that point wow. I knew, yeah, we nailed it. And then that started everything because then the SEC was notified. They suspended trading on the stock. It was on the NASDAQ. It dropped from $33 to $8 in minutes. And then all of a sudden I get a visit from two gentlemen at my office, SEC enforcement and FBI and slapping me with a subpoena. And that started a year of the firm training me. They flew me to New York. We had all kinds of consultants with me, including lawyers, because I had to testify in front of the SEC and a guy who never had a class in auditing, right? And so they prepared me a whole year of this investigation. And I testified. It was two days. Went well. Back then, you didn't throw executives in jail. The worst sanction the SEC could do was, was restrict you from practice for five years so that's what they did to the officers. A couple of them pled no low contendere, not admitting, not 
denying company went uh, bankrupt. It was sold out in bankruptcy for pennies on the dollar. And the worst part was the errors that I found were existed in prior years audits that the firm had already signed off on. You know, an IPO, a debenture offering. So the firm was really exposed. And shortly after that, I sat down and I thought, I thought two things. One was, boy, this was a lot more fun than doing audits. And <laughs> secondly, my marketing genes kicked in. I thought, this forensic accounting stuff, I can sell this stuff. Now, this is like mid-80s. The only forensic accounting group in the whole country is the FBI. Nobody puts forensic in the same sentence as accounting. There's nobody you can call. And so it took four years. And in 1991, I sat down with a guy who hired me. And I said, uh, let's talk. And the result of that was he approved me starting a forensic accounting practice. And there was a guy in Chicago who, who had a successful one. I went up there for a month. I met with the partners, the staff, him, and I thought, I can do this. So I came back, and I sat down with my office managing partner again. And he said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approve this, and let's, let's hope it works out. And I, I said, Bob, <laughs> I said, what do you mean, let's hope it works out? <laughs> and he said, well, this is, you know, you're taking a chance. And he said, at least, he said, at least you got your CPA, you know, you got something to fall back on. If this doesn't work, you can be an auditor again. And I said, no, no, Bob, that's, that's not how we're doing this. I said, you need to reassign all of my audit clients. I need to devote 100% of my time to this. And he looked at me totally off center. He said, but Tom, he said, if this isn't successful, he said, I'll give you a year. But if it's not successful in a year, you won't work here anymore. And I said, I appreciate that, Bob. But I said, I have to do this without a net. And he said, okay. And I went down to my office. I closed the door. I hung a sign outside that I'm sure none of the auditors had ever seen before. It said, please do not disturb making sales calls. And I got the phone book out, the yellow pages. I didn't even know there was a Martindale Hubble back then. And I started calling lawyers. And I kept calling kept calling wow. until I got my first case. And I, that was hired by the EEOC. I still remember the fees. It was $5,620. And it settled on the courthouse steps. I... Um, Wrote a, I wrote a, apparently a good expert report, and the lawyer who hired me, she said, you are amazing. I'm going to tell everybody I know about you, and word started spreading, and the practice just started growing. And so four years into this, let's see, yeah, four years into this, it was uh, 1995, my forensic accounting practice had about 10 people, and it was generating a third of the gross margin of the office with less than 10% of the cost. And so that's when they made me a partner and they sent me to Chicago. They said, you're not staying here. We, we want you to run a bigger platform. So they sent me to Chicago in 1996 as a partner. So <laughs> this is a little different than the traditional public accounting story we hear <laughs> on this show. Just to clarify a little bit, when you hung that sign on the door for making sales calls, you had been at the firm, what, four or five years, right? It was, let me see, so 82, 91, so about seven, about seven years. Yeah. About seven, seven years, okay. I'm curious, the titles may have been much different back then. What was your official title? Supervisor, I was manager? A, no, it's a good question. So I was, uh, I was a manager, I was an audit manager, and when it came time to be promoted to manager, I knew that everyone in the firm preceding me had been promoted to manager, usually at the five-year mark, some at the four-year mark. There were six of us at that point up for manager. I was the only one that was not promoted. I found out there were a couple of uh, managers in the group that just derided me 
and you know, I, to be fair, I wasn't very good at doing audits after that investigation because, I mean, everything alerted me to could this be a fraud? You know, I'd see stray mm-hmm. marks on papers, and I'd want to check it out. So I blew the budget for everything they put me on. So a couple of managers in the meeting said this guy shouldn't be promoted to manager, and and the partners. They were hearing stuff they didn't like, and they said, we'll have to investigate this, so they deferred me. So I was not promoted to manager first, again, first in the history of of that office. And I almost quit, but I thought, no, I'm not going to let them run me out of here. And I stayed, and they promoted me the following year. So when I started this forensic accounting practice in 1991, I was a manager. And the problem was, as I was calling on the top lawyers in Indianapolis, wanting them to hire me to be an expert witness investigations and damage analysis. And they all assumed I was a partner. And when they found out I wasn't, they kind of backed off. So I went to my managing partner. I said, we got to do something. You can't make me a partner. I get it. But I understand there's this uh, term, there's this level that we don't have here, but other places in the firm called director. Can you make me a director? So they came back to me later and said, sure. So I I was a director, but I was basically the only one in the office. Okay. That's part of the reason I was asking is, yeah, I'm thinking you're soliciting this forensic work and you're handing them a card that says audit senior. <laughs> I couldn't see right. that. It's not, it's not <laughs> working out. Yeah, well. No, exactly. I mean, they just, yeah, I couldn't get any jobs. I couldn't get hired. But that, you know, okay. that helps. That helped a lot, actually. So I don't want to cut it off there because there's another dozen years after you were moved to New York that you were still with the yeah, firm. Chicago. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Chicago. There we go. There we go. So take us forward from there. From you know, after they made you partner and moved to Chicago, take us through the rest of your, your sure. time. So it was frightening. It was frightening in the sense that, you know, I'm a pretty confident guy and I'm up to the challenge and I love problem solving. I just love it. You know, once you get past the fear. So I thought, okay, I'm going to Chicago. Who do I know in Chicago? Nobody. I, I couldn't even tell you if I had ever even been in Chicago prior to that. And not only am I going to be a partner in Chicago, but I, I'm in charge of growing this forensic accounting practice. And so how do I do that? Well, I need lawyers. Okay, well, how many lawyers do I know? None. What about the competition? They're huge. The competition is huge. You know, it's a, I think back then, the second largest city in the country, vibrant business community, you know, the loop, and I better walk into Kirkland and Ellis and sell them on hiring a brand new partner. I mean, it was frightening. So once I gathered my thoughts, I figured, okay, what do I need? I need to know lawyers. Well, I don't know them, so I can hire somebody that has those contacts. And I ended up making the best hiring decision of my life. So one of my partners in D.C., good friend, knew I was struggling. He said, there's this guy, his name Mike Dyer. He's retiring from the FBI. When you're 57, they, they kick you out. And he said, you need to meet with them and you'll hire them. And I said, you know, Mac, I said, nothing against the FBI or the government, but these people are good at what they do, but I don't need someone who's good at what they do. I can hire staff people to do that. I need someone who can sell. I need someone who knows lawyers to get me in front of them. And he said, trust me, meet with Mike. So I met with Mike and I hired him at the end of that three-hour lunch. And we've been friends, close friends, best friends ever since. In fact, he's coming over this weekend with some other former colleagues. So Mike had a Rolodex. Maybe your listeners don't know what a Rolodex is, but it used to be these cards. You know, you kept in a box on your desk and it had names and phone numbers, contact information. And he said he had 3,000 contacts 
And I, I kind of chuckled and I said, yeah, I got a lot too. And he says, no, no, no. He says, I have 3,000 contacts that will, that will talk to me when I call them. I have 3,000 contacts that will invite me into their office. And I said, okay, all right, let's do this. I said, give me five names and I'm going to call them and I'm going to ask them a whole lot of questions about Mike Dyer. He said, here, here you go. And I did. And they did. And every one of them said, and they're, they were top flight lawyers. Uh, they're former federal prosecutors now making millions working for big firms in Chicago, hiring people like I wanted to be hired. And they said, we would hire Mike Dyer and your firm just based on his recommendation. Every one of them, it blew me away. And hmm. so that started a relationship that without Mike, I never would have been successful in Chicago. Yeah, I knew what I was doing. I could hire smart people, but I needed the contacts. And once we got in front of these guys and we told them what we do and how we do it, the practice boomed. When I retired, we had 40 professionals, including four partners, and we stopped doing litigation engagements where you testify uh, damages and such like that, and contract disputes. We all loved doing investigations. And I actually petitioned the firm to let me do just investigations. And they said, well, we don't have a practice like that anywhere in the country. And I said, that's what I want to do. That's what our staff wants to do, make it work. And fortunately, I was a huge revenue generator back then. And you know, I had the professional book and things like that. And they said, okay. And they supported us. And all we did investigations, and we did them around the globe. I mean, we were really good. And, and my hat's off to my staff. I take credit for hiring them, training them, and managing them well. But they, they were what made me successful. Nobody ever asked us when they called us to consider hiring us how much. We never had to bid. We never had to bid against our competitors. They just said, how quickly can you get a team to some remote part of the world to fix our problem? It was amazing. Wow. You know, I'm curious, when you were making the decision to retire, well, what was that decision like? And what made that the right time? Because it uh, sounds like you were really enjoying what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. So my decision to retire, and it was early. I was 57. And uh, they don't kick mm. you out until you're 60. Partners are mandatory retirement at 60. And I think in a nutshell, market was that I was just exhausted. I mean, the practice was booming. We were going from one big investigation to another. And they were, for the most part, that they were high profile. They were bet the company cases. I and my team were also the, the team that my own firm would hire when they had problems somewhere in the world. You know, we're like any other business. We have people that do bad things. And for those, they're big cases. And so I was working with general counsel on that all the time, plus running my own practice. And I had that last year before retirement, I had done just two investigations and they were huge. One was in India. I was there for three months. I had, I had teams in every major city in India and it was massive and it ended successfully, but it was difficult. So I come back. And I have a couple months to get back into practice, swing of things, did some happy hours with the staff, got reacquainted, and bam, then it was Russia. And it was huge, high profile. It's in the news, but it is still very confidential, so I, I can't talk about it because I don't know what's public and what's not. But it was a Russian engagement. It was uh, involving one of the largest companies in Russia. And uh, just to tell you how dangerous it was, I mean, Putin... <laughs> And other oligarchs were involved in this thing. It was so dangerous that when I called the lawyer that I, you know, always work with lawyers, you know, they hire us to protect the privilege of the client. 
And so I called him. He's in D.C. His name's Chris. I said, Chris, uh, listen, I'll, I'll be the forensics guy working at your direction. Bring me up to speed. And he said, that'd be great. He said, we've already got a team in Trafalgar in London. We have 30 lawyers that have been working on this for a couple months. We got a meeting next Tuesday. Hope you can join us. And I said, sure, it'd be great. And he says, okay, we'll see you then. And I just before I hung up, I said, oh, by the way, I want you to know I've applied for my Russian visa, but it'll take six months to get it. I mean, six weeks. And he laughed and he said, well, what do you want with one of those? And I was confused. I said, well, you know, Chris, we need data. And, you know, the data is in Moscow. And I just assume we got to go there. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, Tom. He says, uh, I'm not going to Russia and I would advise you not to go either. I said, why not? He says, well, our, the Russians have no concept of corporate liability. And they hate this company that you and I are working for. And he says, we land in Moscow, we'll be arrested. And he says, so we're not doing this in Moscow. I said, okay, I, fine. He says, well, we'll get it done. We got an FTP server in London and then we'll get it done there. And he was right. You know, eight weeks, we were done. And another satisfactory, very good investigation. But that was it. I came home, I crashed. I took a week off. I, I think I slept for most of it. And I just started thinking. I love investigations. My kids, uh, two boys, they started to have grandkids. And I started looking to doing other things, you know, like I've made huge contributions here. I've enjoyed it, but maybe it's time to do something else. And so I decided to uh, retire and do something else. Well, it wasn't that I sat around. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I still did investigations, uh, big ones. I had retired partners, one on the board of PwC. Uh, that hired me to do a very high-profile investigation of a school system, where at the end of it, six months later, we had a bunch of bad principals. And my recommendation was to do an FBI referral because they can always take it to the next step. And the client agreed, uh, FBI. I worked on it for another year, and eventually they indicted 13 principals, school principals. And 12 of them went to prison, which is unheard of in money crimes. But the judge was so furious with what they did. And then I got hired in another high-profile investigation, which took three years. You know, this is all post-retirement. And that was huge. And also did a successful FBI referral on that. And they're still working that case. But then I thought, you know what? I live in the woods. I love cutting trails and working out there in my wife's gardens. Grandkids love coming out. I just stopped doing the investigations. And I picked up writing. In 2002, when Wiley came to me to write the professional book that I did. I had a novel working of my first fraud investigation, Sunday Night Fears, and I set it aside. And it took me three and a half years to complete the Wiley book, which is a whole nother story I won't go into. But it was difficult. It's now in its second edition, doing well. Hmm. But then after I finished this second investigation, well, we bought a dog. And 5.30 in the morning, the dog's whining. And my wife says, your dog needs to go out. So oh, yesterday it was our dog. <laughs> our, <my> dog. <laughs> so I took the dog out. The dog peed. 20 minutes later, the dog sound asleep. My wife sound asleep. And I thought, I'm going to go dig out that novel. So I dug it out and I got into it. I published it and I love it. And I just published my second novel and I have started my third novel. So that's what I believe I'm going to be doing the rest of my life is writing. I absolutely love it. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, tell us about your books. I guess, you know, what are the titles and then what are they basically about, each one? Yeah, so I sell exclusively on Amazon. Okay. I independently published because I had an experience with a, a big publisher and 
I guess I'm one of them control freaks. I hire the best consultants I could find, editors, developmental editors, copy editors, book designers, consultants. So I spent a lot of money to do it, but I, I control it, uh, not, not a book publisher. So, so when a book publisher buys your books, they buy your book. Okay, They, they give you $5,000. They own your book, and I couldn't handle that because they could change whatever they want. So I first independently published Sunday Night Fears, which was that Sunday night when I was scared to death that earnings release was coming up. And I mean, I was sweating bullets. I was having panic attacks. It was awful. So Sunday Night Fears is basically about my story. Protagonist Sam Halloran is who basically portrayed me, how I got into accounting, how I found my first fraud and and the aftermath of all that. And so I thought, well, this is going to be great because I have all these investigations. All I have to do is take them and fictionalize them. And that's what I do. So my second book is about an investigation I did in Central America that was scary, life-threatening, huge, and a big break. Nobody thought we were going to solve this thing. And we did. And I thought it would make for a great novel. And again, you know, Sam Halloran takes his team down there. And so the easy part about writing the novels is the basic plot structure is there because all these things happen. I just fill in the blanks with the fiction that keeps thriller readers engaged Mm. and interesting rather than the boring accounting stuff, right? Uh, So (laughs) people have read my books. I guess it's because I'm not really an accountant. I was a salesman, and the most interesting thing in the world to me are people, and I've done a lot. I've met a lot of people. And uh, people fascinate me. And the people that I have met, especially watching them making mistakes and how they react to different situations, you know, I made notes of these all along. And those people inform my writing. You know, Sam Halloran, the protagonist of my books, he's a flawed person. He's a good guy. But, you know, he's, he's made mistakes, professional mistakes, ethical mistakes, moral mistakes. And it's kind of a theme I've had with my staff and now my mentees. I still mentor about a dozen people around the world that you're going to make mistakes in life. And I learned that myself the hard way. You're going to make mistakes. And and the people who are not making mistakes on a regular basis are people that are not doing the uh, tasks, not taking the challenging opportunities. They're avoiding them thinking that I don't want to fail. You know, I've been you know, a straight-A student my whole life. I've won all these awards. And, and they stay in their comfort zone. And it's the absolute worst place to be. And this theme of mine, which is get out there and try. And when you fail, learn from it and try again. It just uh, permeates my novels. So not only is it interesting and fun, but you're reading about people who are otherwise successful that are making mistakes and they don't stop. They learn from, they keep going. And I think I actually, and a little bit of this that I'm about to say is in my first book, is I got from my father, Uh, you know, not in a good way. My dad was an alcoholic. He was abusive. He was not a very good person. In fact, on my 13th birthday, this is something you never forget. He told me, he says, you are the greatest disappointment of my life. And obviously that hurt. But as I matured, I came to realize that it was his way of preparing me for tough times ahead. As, as he had experienced. Probably could have used a different approach <laughs> at the end of the day. But, yeah. you know, I've always had a no-victim philosophy that, you know, I always played a hand of, of bad cards, but 
that that's what I was dealt. And I would play those and I would make a lemonade out of lemons. And at the end of the day, I'm very pleased with how it all turned out for me. So, you know, what I tell my mentees when, when they come to me with, gee, I don't know if I should take this opportunity. I think I need to get an advanced degree. And I said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But it's, I said, it sounds like a great opportunity. And yet you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail. You know, just don't worry about it. You're going to learn. You're going to pick it up. You're going to be a better person for it. I, I would tell my staff people that when you go on a new assignment, let's say you're going to be investigating inventory fraud and you're thinking, I've never done that. I said, go up to the senior associate or the manager that you're about to work with and say, look, I'll be working with you next week. I've never done this before. I hope I do a lot of things well, but please do me a favor. And when I mess up, please tell me about that as close to the event as possible so I can learn. So you're giving your supervisor permission to criticize you. Two things will happen. One is you will grow so fast because... Because these seniors and managers and even partners, they worry that people aren't going to be doing the right things and afraid to ask them questions because of their insecurities. And you're giving them permission to criticize you. And they will criticize you, but they will love you. And they will be your greatest supporters for the rest of your career. And that's essentially what I've done. I mean, there's no way I would have been successful at PwC if I didn't have people who were invested in me and cared about me and wanted to see me successful. And I'd venture to say that every other person that's successful in every endeavor can point to someone, maybe more than one person, that has helped pull them up that ladder of success. And the best way to do that is let these people know you're vulnerable, you're willing to make mistakes, but you want to learn. Mm. Very insightful. Well, I end every show with the same three questions, and I want to get to those, but there's one more thing I want to ask you about, <laughs> because this came up a little bit in our pre-show conversation. Yeah, I mentioned that you were connected to at least two guests that I'm aware of that we've had on the show. One of them is Cece Lung, and that you know, you're featured in her book, Dear Accountant, which is how you and I ended up being connected but then also, you mentioned working with or collaborating with Kelly Richmond Pope, also the writer and director, or writer and producer, rather, of All the Queen's Horses. How do you know Kelly? How did that end up happening? Yeah, Kelly. Kelly and I met some years ago. I was still running the practice. Oh, I know how. She <laughs> tried to hire her. <laughs> she, I liked her a lot. I don't know where I met her, but I tried to hire her. And she was actually looking for a job. And she ended up going with KPMG. And uh, her reason was uh, they were going to allow her to do research because I knew she wanted to get a PhD and, and end up being a professor. And so I said, that's, that's fine, but we don't do research here. We do investigations, and I will send you all over the world. And so we kind of laughed about that. She went to KPMG, but then I ended up teaching the first forensic accounting course ever taught in the whole Chicagoland area at DePaul University. It was at the end of uh, Enron WorldCom. WorldCom had just been discovered, and, and I was really angry that auditors can't find fraud, and, and there's there's good, solid legal reasons for that. So I called DePaul University and, and said, we'd like to teach this course. What do you think? And they, they jumped all over it. And so I started teaching in the fall of 2002 the Forensic Accounting Investigations course. 
So I did that for a couple of years, and my staff took it over, and then Kelly took it over. She had her PhD. She wanted to teach, and so she started with that course. And I mean, I know she's still teaching that course, and she teaches a number of other courses there. She's very successful at DePaul. She's a full professor. But after that, after I retired, probably about four years into retirement, I get a call from Kelly. You know, she's teaching at DePaul, and she said, did you read that article about this Rita Cronwell, treasurer of Dixon, Illinois, being arrested by the FBI? This was, I think, about the spring of 2012. And I said, yeah, yeah, I just I read this morning. It's crazy. So we started talking about it. And as we talked about it, she said, I want to do a documentary on this thing. And, she, you know, Kelly was always a big thinker, just out of the box thinking. It's one of the things I love about her. And talk about taking risks. I mean, she's a strong advocate of doing that and, and her successful career shows that that's the way to go. So she came out to the house. I only live like 30 minutes from Dixon. So we kind of sat around and we brainstormed and we kind of laid out a program of what we would do. And I said, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to help you with this thing. And so my job was to get all the documents and the transcripts. And together we did interviews. We, we interviewed the mayor of Dixon. That's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> that led us to interviews of townspeople, of other Dixon officials, and we, we had a ball doing it. We had a ball. I mean, Kelly was running the whole thing, which is great, so I could just focus on the fraud. And then I worked on it for about a year or so, went to the sentencing hearing, went to the auction of all her stuff and really loved it. And then Kelly found a producer, and she kept going with her dream of turning this into a documentary. And you know, a few years later, bam, she did it. It's all the Queen's horses. It's a very well-made documentary that should serve as a, a cautionary tale for every municipality in the country. And I appeared in it briefly. You don't want to link, blink. But I just <laughs> loved every part of it. And I think the world of Kelly, she's accomplished a lot, but I, I think she's just going to keep on climbing. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting how small the accounting world is sometimes. I just figured yeah. I'd ask. <laughs> Well, I do end every show with the same three questions. Let's go ahead and get to those. The first one's usually one of the easier ones. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? Mark, without a doubt, it's that first fraud discovery. Mm -hmm. I've had some really good events in, in, in my life professionally, but this is by far the proudest moment is when that partner came out of that room holding my evidence package. He looked me in the eye and said, we have a big problem. I need to assemble a board. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here... I really thought I was going to get fired. I will never experience that feeling of relief again that I, I took a chance. I did what I thought was the right thing to do with integrity, and I was right. And I, you know, I held to my convictions. And in, in the face of, of complete failure, you know, again, knowing that I could fail, knowing that I could be fired, destroying my career, I did what I thought was right. And I'm, I'm most proud of that moment. Hmm. Well, second request, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. <laughs> and a little detail behind it is good because that's how we learn from these. Sure. As I've said earlier, I, I've made lots of mistakes, so I don't run from challenges. But then you shouldn't move hastily in a plan, ignoring other things that you should, you should take into consideration. And so I'll, I'm going to give you the lesson first and then tell you how I learned it. And, and the lesson here is that I learned is to encourage diversity of thought. And by that, I mean, you surround yourself with the most intelligent people you can find and you constantly challenge them to challenge you. And I mean, I've called my staff on the carpet when 
somebody hasn't disagreed with me on a particular point or a marketing approach or a testifying approach. And, you know, all my staff know that I want you to push back. So I, I knew this. I believe this is how you should operate. But then I made one of the biggest mistakes in my career that could have got us killed. And that's not hyperbole. So we were on the Central American country investigation in 1999. This is the investigation serving as the inspiration for my second novel, One Honest Soul. I mean, I was killing it. Working for the management committee, we pulled things out of the fire that they thought were lost. And so they were coming to me. They wouldn't make any decisions without coming to me. So obviously it's feeding my ego. My pride is growing. And so they came to me on a particularly big issue. And I said, not a problem. I said, we just fired their security company. I'll hire a new security company. We'll get this guy out of the plant. That's, that's the way we should do it. And they said, okay, do it. So I, um, I got the right people. I made the right calls, met with the security company uh, firm. We fired them. They had over 160 armed guards. We had, we had death threats on us the whole time we were down there. I have a picture on my desk with 22 people standing in it, posing for the picture. There's 11 of my staff and 11 bodyguards. We all had bodyguards. It was very, very dangerous engagement. But everything was going well, and I wanted to get out to the plant. They had 900 employees. I wanted to start interviewing. You kick out the bad guy, usually the employees will then come forward. So knowing that we had fired the security guys... I just grabbed a couple of my managers, bodyguards, a local lawyer, and said, we're going out to the plant. We're going to interview these people. And, and we get to the plant, and right in front of the gate, a half-track pulls in behind our van and blocks our exit. And then it was like the Alamo. All around us were men with guns, automatic weapons. And because I had our new security guys out there, they were in school buses waiting for us, so they're on my right. And they see the guns, and so they hop out. and. I have guns too, automatic weapons. And we're right in the middle of over 100 weapons. And they took us in the plant. One of my hobbies is photography, and I had a camera on my lap. And to this day, I kick myself for not taking pictures, but I actually thought we were going to die. So they take us in the plant. They put us in a room. We're there with, with guns on us for about an hour. And then I, I found out that they were negotiating with the company's lawyers, and they were not going to let us go. And all of the security guys that I thought were fired were still there. And oh. um, we were there until, uh, it was that was about 9 o'clock in the morning. We were there until 6 o'clock at night. And when the company finally negotiated our release for $450,000 in ransom fees, I will never forget that mistake. And that was all on me. It was all avoidable. It was stupid. I should have swallowed my pride, sent my security team to confirm the guards had vacated it, had talked to my staff told him my plan. What do you think? And instead I, I played John Wayne. So you want to surround yourself with people that have the confidence to disagree with you. When you're setting up committees, you want to put at least one person on that committee that you know will disagree with you. If, if you're getting ready to testify, put tough people there to challenge you. So you make those mistakes, not in front of a jury. So diversity of thought. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Having the right input is it's <laughs> very important. Wow. Well, last question, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Uh, hands down, I was 20 years old. I was a senior at uh, undergraduate marketing major. And my marketing professor came to me towards the end of the class. We were going through recruiting and, you know, I was doing interviews. And he's a great guy. Uh, I 
really liked the guy and he liked me. And he called me over after class was dismissed and he handed me a book. And he said, Tom, he said, I, I think this book will absolutely ensure your success as a salesman. And I looked at it and it was Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I, his name is Norm. I said, Norm, this is, this is a selling book. This is like uh, human relations. And he said, Tom, trust me, read the book, use it as a reference manual, use it throughout your career, and it will ensure your success. And by golly, he was right. I think so much of that book that I gave it to every person I ever hired, required reading. It's required reading for every one of my mentees. It is the absolute secret to success. And the scary thing is, it is so elementary. It has tips and techniques that we all know, but things like pride get in the way and we forget what causes people to want to be around you. It's all about mastering the art of persuasion. It is clearly the single most important factor contributing to my success. Nothing comes close, not my education, not my presumed intelligence, nothing. I, I could give you a, a million examples of how I have used it, but the key ingredient there is that when people like you, the rules change. They do. And all you have to do is give people what they want. And it's so easy to figure that out because it's exactly what you want. We want to be recognized. We want to be influencers. We want to be important. We want people to hire us, to come to work for us, to trust in us. And most of us, and I did until I learned this, but most of us want other people to be impressed with us so that when you're meeting somebody the first time, you start telling them about you. And 20 minutes later, you know, their eyes glaze over and you're still talking about you. You know, what I learned to do when I'm meeting a new lawyer is I'll, I'll sit down with them. Maybe we'll talk about something in the news. But then I'll always throw this question out. I'll say, so what's keeping you up at night? And they go, oh, geez, I got this case. Well, hello. <laughs> Let's start talking about what he wants. He, he needs help on a case. And I want to find that out as soon as possible. I would go to networking events at a law firm. And here and there, I would take young associates with me. And one day, I, was, I took this new senior associate, sharp guy, but he needed to start learning how to network. And he'd read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and now we're going to actually do it. So we're, we're walking. He says, where are we going? I says, we're, we're going over this networking event at Kirkland. And he stops uh, dead in his tracks like his feet are in wet concrete. He said, I, I can't go there. It's Kirkland. It's the most prestigious firm in the city. I can't talk to those people. Come on, just follow me. I said, just watch me. Just watch. So we meet a lawyer. And he's standing next to me. And I talk to the lawyer. And so what's the first thing I say? So I say, uh, so are you a litigator or transaction lawyer? He says, I'm, I'm a litigator. I said, oh, geez, it's fascinating. What made you want to go to law school? And he, he tells me his story. I said, well, what made you want to be a litigator? I mean, you know, you got to hire experts and you got to depend on them. That's, that's got to be stressful as hell. And he is just engrossed in telling me all about his job and the things that he loves. And what do you think happens 10 years later? He says, so, I mean, 10 minutes later, he says, so what do you do? Now, he's just invited me to enter his conversation. So I'll drop a few tidbits. And then all of a sudden we're exchanging business cards and at the end of it, I'll say, listen, you have a fascinating practice, one I'd like to learn more about. Do you mind if I stay in touch with you? What's he going to say? No. Nobody's ever said no. Of course. 
So, you know, in six weeks, I'll give them a call. We'll have lunch. Now I get to know them better. And this is the best way to increase your network. And so many people are afraid to do that because they don't have enough confidence in their own resume. You don't need it. You just need to ask people about themselves, and you can do it in any environment. So that book that was presented to me, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was absolutely the best advice I ever received, and it's you know it's advice that I pass on to other people who are competing in a very difficult and competitive world to be successful. Mm, that is great advice. It's great advice. So speaking of books, as we close it down here, if some of our listeners want to continue the story and learn more about you and, and your books, I mean, Oh, what's the best place online to find out more about you, Tom? Uh, sure. They can go to my website, which is TomGoldenBooks.com. My novels are sold exclusively on Amazon and their profile in my website, too. And feel free to drop me a line. I always like hearing from young accountants and my readers uh, at Tom at TomGoldenBooks.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. This, <laughs> this is an episode that we could easily go on tangents and have two or three more episodes. It's been a fun, it's been a fun story to hear and, and a fun journey, I'm sure, as well. So thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thank you, Mark. Well, that was my interview with Tom Golden. And I usually have a few takeaways. One of them is really an overarching thought that it's important to be ready and be open to plan B in your career, so to speak, because Tom didn't initially target forensics. He targeted consulting. He wanted to get into accounting consulting. It wasn't necessarily forensics, and he happened on forensics as a career because of what a lot of people would consider an unfortunate circumstance in their career. You know, one of his first jobs, he ends up finding a tremendous fraud with an SEC-traded company. And as he mentioned, he was scared to death in the beginning. And it's interesting how it works out. He figured out that, my gosh, he has the skill set and the interest and the ability to get into investigations. And it ended up being a tremendous career for him. So, you know, there again, just being open to change in your career as opportunities arise, I think is very important. And then secondly, we've interviewed a few forensics individuals on this show, and it, it never stops surprising me how interesting that field can be. You know, there again, how unfortunate some of the situations are, but how interesting some of the work can be. Sometimes too interesting, I'm sure. But nonetheless, very, very unique, very different. Definitely a, an interesting way to take your career if that's something that appeals to you. Well, thank you again for joining us. This wraps up another episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. We will see you soon. And I really appreciate you sharing your time with us because after all, this is Where Accountants Go. Where Accountants Go.